The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. Today we welcome our friend Mike McCloskey. Mike is the founder of 361 Interactive. He is grateful for the privilege of studying and supporting decision makers in over 100 military and commercial domains over the past 25 years. These domains include intelligence analysts, special operations forces, computer hackers, cybersecurity personnel, intelligence analysts, and firefighters. He speaks both psychology and engineering and enjoys helping to bridge the gap between these often disconnected worlds. In his free time, Mike spent, enjoys spending time with his family, backpacking, playing several sports poorly, and eating the hottest foods on the planet. He has a master's degree in psychology and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Dayton. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you founded 361 Interactive nearly 20 years ago. I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit about what it was like to establish a small business and kind of how that's evolved over the years. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. I kind of, I wouldn't say I stumbled into it, but um, as, as I think you both know, I started off um, at Klein Associates for several years and, you know, had uh, a great time, learned a lot and did a lot of really interesting projects. Um, one of these projects, we actually had a, a new, um, I guess, subcontractor developing some interactive tools for us. And uh, it was called Studio 361. And they were also sort of a, a corporate branding firm as well, very, another very small company. Uh, but it was really kind of cool, the things they did in, in, in applying a lot of our really interesting findings to develop some really, um, really not, not necessarily just flashy, but really neat, innovative, interactive products. And so that was a really kind of neat mix for me. And so I developed a relationship with those folks and eventually um, sort of transitioned out of client associates into studio 361 as their director of interactive learning um but continuing to work with client um quite a bit and so i worked with those folks for a while and we had some success where um with some um sbir efforts uh some work for the centers for disease control developing some interactive games for uh teaching kids healthy behaviors through um through games and, and educational uh, resources for teachers and health educators. And so eventually I sort of branched off from those folks and started 361 Interactive here locally, where it's just myself. Um, and really, um, I'm not the best uh, fundamental researcher, but I really enjoy applying things that smart people do. So taking uh, findings and then applying them to whether it's uh, training, uh, interfaces, organizational redesigns, that kind of stuff. I just really like the application. So um, um, uh, 361 Interactive is probably uh, heavy into the applied area. And so that's what we've been doing a lot. Uh, recently done a ton of stuff in uh, cross-cultural competence, been very fortunate to work in that. And uh, lately we've been doing a lot in the Intel community, but dabbling more in things like crowdsourcing now, things like that. And, um, you know, have um, continuously new folks joining us, but a lot of a lot of good friends have been with me from almost from the start, like you know Dave Cancer, Julio Mateo, folks like that. Um, 
but yeah, so it's, it's, we've evolved, but, um, uh, kind of, um, evolved, but stayed the same, I guess, just doing different, interesting, very applied research, applying, um, you know, naturalistic decision-making research into, I guess, new and different areas. So what is, what is one of the most exciting things you're working on right now? Uh, well, right now we're doing a project for the Navy. We're developing a, uh, a crowdsourcing tool. So uh, the sponsor was very interested in, uh, I think he'd had a lot of experiences with large hierarchical organizations and was very frustrated with the inefficiencies that arise in these organizations and how poorly they are identified, prioritized, and solved. And so he had... He had us come in to develop a crowdsourcing tool, which we're in the midst of right now, that can help these large organizations both identify and resolve their problems and their inefficiencies organically. So leveraging their own um, workforces versus hiring high-priced consultants to come in uh, and solve the problems for them and giving them just a snapshot in time. So we're trying to create a dynamic system that um, is always evolving, always kind of giving the latest. Here, here's kind of like the, the health of our organization. Here are the issues that our people have identified, here's how they prioritized them. And then once you kind of identify which ones are the the, the most pressing ones, leveraging that workforce uh, through some innovative crowdsourcing algorithm techniques to collectively solve those problems and those um, inefficiencies. So we're working a lot with, um, and again, this is where we're taking research that other folks have done, and but trying to put it all together. Um, we know uh, taking taking some um, work that's been done by folks at um, you know Stanford, Yale, MIT, who are developing some very specific algorithms to um, basically apply crowdsourcing techniques to get the most out of your uh, out of large numbers of people. But so we try to pick and choose from those, but try to integrate that into a very um, you know decision centered solution um, based on the types of problems that large organizations have. So again, they're doing some fundamental research, and we're trying to take that really good stuff and apply it uh, to large organizations. So we've been learned a lot and we're continuing to learn a lot from our uh, large organization partners, ranging from, you know, a fortune 500 company to a large healthcare organization. Um, you know, folks, you know, ranging in size from maybe a thousand people to tens and tens of thousands of folks and trying to figure out what, how do we design something that'll be both useful and used by by them? So that's been kind of a neat one. So I was I was going to follow up, uh, Mike. So when you say crowdsourcing, I think about things like Reddit. What does crowdsourcing look like in the context of a business or, or a large institution? Well, uh, a big thing with with uh, working with these large institutions is, you know, obviously they have thousands of employees at a lot of different levels. Each employee has sort of like their own unique perspective on um what they feel the issues they're facing are. A lot of times, uh, these organizations are stovepiped as well. So, um, you know, lessons aren't getting learned, issues aren't getting shared across the organization. And so when we say crowdsourcing with these large groups, it's basically trying to get collective input from volunteers anonymously so that they'll feel like their input is safely obtained. And then sort of how, how do we what kind of things do we try to draw out from them? And then how do we collectively organize that and determine, okay, from these little bits and pieces, little snapshots of the organization, looking from all these different perspectives, all these different levels, how do we identify, how do those key issues rise to the top? And then how do those get, so, so how do we prioritize those? How do we determine, okay, what are the ones that are the, really the most, most critical and the most wide reaching? 
And then when we do that, then how do we open that up for, again, the crowd so that any employee who's interested in helping can contribute to solving that problem? So there's an ideation stage where, you know, it could be somebody, it could be a, um, you know, a, a very junior level employee to a senior level employee could could be contributing to, to solve this problem. They might have a, they might have a piece of the answer, but how do we create a system that'll allow them to contribute based on their, I guess, their awareness, contribute to that solution. But then how do you pull all that together to something integrated, integrated and cohesive? You know, there, there are algorithms, um, one uh, called mechanical novel, for example, we didn't write, but we're, we're leveraging elements of it. It's like, how do you, um, take a, a input from a lot of folks to somehow create uh, a novel. You know, different people will be writing different, different pieces of it, different people will be editing these different pieces, but somehow through the magic of crowdsourcing, uh, a novel will result. So you'll get some integrated product that is better than the, you know, better than some of its parts. And so again, we're trying to take, uh, take things we've learned from what other people are doing and then try to pull those together and say, okay, but what will really work then in these constraints of an organization? So we have anonymity and you have, you know, different folks at different levels contributing. So it's a combination of, um, you know, taking some of that research, but also then doing our own experimentation on, on how do you configure a system to, um, you know, to weight and scale things. You know, little things like there's a, something called a bag of lemons approach, which I hadn't heard of. And it's basically um, research has shown it's a lot easier for people in general to say what they don't like about ideas. If you give them a, if you give them a bunch of ideas... Um, it's apparently harder for us as humans to say, what are the ones we think are the best, but it's easier for us to say, Hey, these are the garbage ideas. These are the ones we don't like. And so we try to integrate that into our testing and see if we get better resultant products by using approach kind of like that. And then how do people identify if you have a whole bunch of ideas that are being contributed, how do you let people together try to figure out how ideas interrelate, which ones are redundant. And again, which ones are sort of like optimal and which ones work better together. So we're trying to do experimentation around that as we develop our tool. This is fascinating. Initially, you're trying to find a way that people can kind of safely and anonymously submit ideas. But then as you're really moving into the solution phase, at that point, do people uh, know who each other is so that they can begin to really collaborate and push back and forth? No, and that's really one of the trade-offs because what we what we found in working with the large organizations is there's a, there there is an uh, inhibition to really contribute. It, it, it's a balance, and it's something that the the crowdsourcing community is is really you know it's one of the big research areas is how do you protect anonymity while still holding people accountable or still enabling recognition when recognition is wanted? So it's a real balancing act. And so, you know, there, there are different kind of kind of technical ways to address that, but, um, but it is something that, that we've struggled with as well as we've done our research. But yeah, but throughout the whole thing, people are, uh, in our current uh, version of the system, people are still anonymous. Fascinating. Yeah, it's been a neat project for us. So, Mike, that, that feels uh, a fair distance away from the sort of individual expert stuff that we were working on together at Klein. Do you, um, did, are, what are the parallels or, or maybe, you know, what's it like sort of working in this uh, domain where you're worried more about sort of the, the metadata than the individual perspective? Yeah, it's definitely different. I mean, I, I think what, what pulls it together, maybe a common thing is um, decision making. Right. But we're looking at a very high level 
at how do large organizations make decisions. So one of the first things we did is work with these folks and say, how are you currently doing it? How are you figuring out what your problems and your issues are? And then um, how are you or aren't you um, leveraging or uh, soliciting inputs from your across the workforce? How do you know you're getting a representative sample? Are you? And then once you identify what you think these issues are, how do you go about solving and resolving them? So we, and, and, and where is it broken? And so, you know, we did some CDMs there. We tried to say, you know, what are some representative cases where this has worked or hasn't worked? And so we try to, before we even, you know, our, our line, you know, that I think is a fairly common, before you write a line of code, let's really understand the environment. And our sponsor didn't care about that as much because he wanted the tool and he wanted uh, us to apply all these different algorithms. But I think maybe what was unique in our approach and why we got the work is because, well, you know, let's really, again, let's understand the environment we're operating in. You know, we can make the best tool in the world, but if we don't understand what it's like to put it in, um, you know, embed it within a large organization, and there are differences across these organizations too, which we had to account for. And so um, I think our argument is saying, hey, before, you know, before we make this tool, let's really understand the folks that we're trying to support. How do they currently do it? What are the barriers to effective um, issue identification? and um, you know, and what would fly in an organization too across levels? What are the inhibitors of participating in something like this as a junior person, as a mid-level, you know, as an executive? What does leadership need to know? How does it need to be designed so that they can actually take these findings and then implement them? But again, how do you engage people to participate in it while ensuring that they're anonymous? But if they're anonymous, they can't be rewarded. And so it's you really want to try to get it. You know, what are some of the more intrinsic uh, motivations for engaging? So we're looking at motivation. We're looking at individual decision-making, you know, willingness to engage and participate, uh, large corporation decision-making. So I, I think it still had all those elements, and we did do, um, you know, some of that, you know, CTA, CDM stuff that, that is kind of foundational. And the bottom line is, is we're trying to help decision-making. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Are, are you finding that that sort of pitch of, uh, let, let's understand the decision-making up front is what helps attract customers to your work? Yeah, honestly, I really do. You know, Brian, if, if you know, I, whenever we're proposing for, you know, for things, I always try to think about what are most of the people going to be proposing. And I think a lot of folks, if you look at, you know, for example, when solicitations come out, uh, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know that folks often have a solution in mind when what is really needed is to better, to first understand the problem and those users and be advocates for their decision-making. Um because people are going to say, hey, I got this greatest idea. Here's how I'm going to solve your problem. And so what we try to tend to do is, hey, we're going to, you know, I even say up front sometimes is to kind of you know, throw people off is, I don't know how to solve your problem, but I know how to figure out how to solve your problem. And that's based on understanding, you know, the, the people that you're trying to support first. And so that's, I think, a common theme of, of um, a lot of what we do and propose. Right. And hopefully those reviewers get past that first line, right? <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, it might, it might explain why sometimes uh, you never hear from them again. All right. All right. So, Mike, if you think back over your career, what project has been the most rewarding for you? Uh, there have been a lot, but I'd say I think by far um, I, it's not a single project, but it's a series of projects where we work with the Navy SEALs and developing training for them. Um, and so – so new uh, Navy SEALs, when um, you know when they're brand new, when they're called pups, SEAL pups, they have to go through a uh, 
some called a pipeline. So they have to go through uh, 18 months of uh, training. And it's pretty intensive stuff. And they get really essential critical skills here. They get, you know, all the, the uh, survival and escape and combat and weapons handling, all those, you know, really, really critical skills, that uh, the technical skills. But they were really lacking in um, cultural skills training. And a lot of people would say, well, so what, right? You know, they're Navy SEALs. They have to go out and take out bin Laden. Um, but it turns out that a, a large majority of a large portion of their missions is um, has nothing to do with combat. Um, they often have to train foreign forces. That's a big part of their um, big part of their mission. And they often have to gather atmospherics and go to um, you know distant uh, distant locations where they're not familiar with their culture, and they have to build rapport, they have to build relationships in order to achieve their missions. And so. Uh, there was some leadership out at uh, on the West Coast who um, recognized this, and so they 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 knew about our cultural. We've been doing cultural cross cultural competence fundamental research and then some applied research since about 2007. Uh, very fortunate to have that work and work with a lot of really cool folks. But um, we developed um, you know kind of one of the first foundational models that's empirically based on what makes a warfighter cross culturally competent. So you can drop them in a new environment unfamiliar cultural environment and they can immediately be uh, mission effective and adaptable and adjustable, being able to observe and interpret individual and group dynamics. You know, what is it about those folks who can be immediately effective? And so we studied that, we developed uh, some models of, of competence and how that evolves. And so this, um, these folks had heard about our work. And so they asked us to come out and look at a, a training course that they had a, a sort of an old salty person putting on for, for supposedly cultural skills. And so we went out, um, it's actually Julio, Mateo and I, we went out to, we we're just supposed to be observing this this course. And um, it turned out, you know, the, the, the course was all about just telling stories and, and, and showing some uh, interesting movie clips, things like that. And it was very entertaining, but it really wasn't getting at the skills and the aptitudes that are necessary. Um, and at this same location, they have language instructors, and these instructors were from, um, you know, a bunch of different key areas or regions where Navy SEALs are often deployed to. And um, and you know, and so we were just talking with some of them. They said, "Wow, what a cool resource! Wouldn't it be neat to have a um, sort of a you know a field exercise where you use some of these folks and give them actual practice in interacting with local cultures?" And so. Um, uh, one of the, uh, I guess, one of the people who were out there when we were just observing one of the one of the uh, one of the folks out there said, "Hey, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't you guys uh, do that on Friday?" And this was Wednesday, and uh, and so Julio and I were freaking out, right? And um, and it's like, uh, holy crap! And they're like, "Yeah, that would be great. Just do it on Friday. Do it on the last day." And so, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget those next that next day and a half that we were. Um, we basically we had to train these uh, foreign language instructors, a, an awesome, amazing group of folks. Um, had to train them to um, be specific role players in this cultural village, and so we created this little, um, you know, this this scenario um, that involved going into this village to gather atmospherics. But each of these different sort of stations in this village represented a different culture, and so. And so some people are like, there's no way that's so that's so um, unrealistic. Why would you do that? That'll never work. And I'm like, well, you know, let's try. I think it's kind of a cool idea. So um, we created the sort of six station 
village in their little um in a little place where they do their survival escape resistance training a little village um but but um we had roles for them and we had sort of a story unfolding in this multicultural village and the idea was not to make it super um super totally authentic but to make it cognitively authentic we wanted to put them in situations where they had opportunities to observe to interact and to make mistakes and hopefully learn from them um, so we were creating this this um, situation and in my past work interacting with some folks who had had amazing um, you know, over 20 years of experiences just interacting with diverse cultures and the performance of their missions the civil affairs folks special forces military transition teams, these folks are really immersed in the cultures when they deploy. There was this one colonel who was talking to me in one, one evening, and he's like, uh, this is when I was trying to figure out what cross-cultural competence was all about. And he's like, he's like, Mike, I'll, I'll tell you what, I can, you show me, um, you show me any soldier, and I can tell you, under certain circumstances, I can tell you within five minutes whether or not they're going to be good out on a cultural deployment or whether they're going to be bad. I'm like, it's amazing. What, what, what do you need to see? He's like, show me what they're like when they first meet their interpreter. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And he started talking about that. He said, I can tell when somebody meets the interpreter for the first time, how they're going to be in an immersive environment. It's like those people who are, um, you know, basically treat them, you know, just like they're just like a, a resource and nothing more. They don't introduce themselves. They don't find out, you know, that, um, that those people are going to be unsuccessful. Now look at those people who take the time to introduce themselves, to ask them some questions about them, how they became an interpreter, um, what their history is, do they have family, why, you know, why are they doing this job, what they hope to get from it. Um, you know, they're, and then they start, then they start asking them, okay, we're going to go into this village here. Is there anything you can tell me about it? Okay. You know, give me you know, any information there. So they use them as a resource, but they're also treating them as individuals. Um, and they're also building rapport because a good interpreter can make or break uh, an interaction and even parts of a deployment. And so I learned more and more about this and studied more about it. And so we identified, um, you know, a lot of characteristics, things people do with their interpreters um, right when they first meet them. And so we incorporated that into this immersive village. So they're going to six different stations like uh, Yemen, Iran, the Philippines. Uh, I'm just I'm throwing out hypothetical countries here. But what we do in this Friday, this last day of the uh, uh, of the of the SEAL training, uh, so we created this environment where they go interact. But each time they go to a new station, they meet an interpreter for the first time, and so we would watch them interact. And uh, each time, we and the interpreter would give them just a little bit of feedback. We'd have them reflect a little bit. How thing? How might things have gone? You know, differently. You know, what did you do? Well, you know, I didn't. I didn't know how to use my interpreter. I didn't know where to put them. I didn't even know their name. And so each time they do it, they'd get a little bit incrementally better, but they'd get better by making mistakes and learning from them uh, and kind of reflecting upon them. And that was part of this rotation amongst this multicultural village. And in, in the end, um, you know, uh, Hulu and I were just we're beyond shocked to see how well this worked with these with these uh, young folks that they actually got some hands on experience in a safe environment, practicing and making some mistakes but when they made mistakes. Uh, the role players who were amazing um, really um, put them on the spot. You know, if they didn't greet, if they didn't greet an elder with respect, that elder would get really angry with them. And they'd like, and so we'd give them these sort of aha moments um, that they said, wow, I'm never going to forget these, you know, and it was, you know, I totally see how I screwed up. And then they do a little better next time. And then the next time. Um, so after we finished 
with that day, um, the sponsor, you know, the, the, the sponsor was totally convinced and they're like, okay, this is the kind of decision-making training we need. Um, and so we were brought on then right after that on the spot to do, it ended up being uh, basically three years worth of efforts to develop a week long curriculum that had this immersive training throughout. And we had some classroom exercise, classroom exercises. We had some sort of multimedia tools that we developed to help people observe and interpret and sense making. But we put it all in the uh, form of a week long course that um, all the SEALs that went through there then would go through, um, participate. And then we started, after we did that, we then trained former Navy SEALs to be the, be the uh, teachers and also the evaluators uh, of the course. And then we did some region specific training after that. But um, all in all, it was, it was, I think, by far one of the most rewarding projects we had. And, you know, it was just, we were, we were thrown in the fire. You know, we could have been given uh, a few months to make that, you know, that one day of immersive cultural training. But the fact that we were given a day and a half and, uh, you know, somehow pulled it out was just really rewarding for us and just led to a lot of really good work. And, um, and it really, I think working, uh, a lot of, a lot of you probably, you know, you know, Julio pretty well is that we work really well together because I'm the kind of guy who just throws something against the wall and kind of see what sticks. And uh, I'll say, oh, yeah, Julio, you know, research tells us, you know, that, that this this will work. And he's like, uh, no, research doesn't say that at all. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, then it kind of says this, right? And he said, no, 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 it doesn't say that anywhere. So he's <laughs> he's always the one who tells me what reality is. Um, but I'm the one who's willing to kind of, you know, like kind of take take some chances and try things. And so it worked. It just worked really well. And then we would continue with um you know, other team members then to develop and put on that training over a period of, you know, a few years and then, you know, refine it, develop some assessments for it and then train the trainers. And we, when we left, we felt like we had a really good product that is really making a difference and very well received by the, uh, by the folks who went through it. And it, and I, I would like to think that it's really helped them in their uh, deployments. People would come back and talk about how, you know, Hey, I, this exact same thing happened to me out in, out in the field. And so it was really neat to go through that on my own you know, in this, in this village or in your class. And so I'd say, yeah, by far, that was probably one of the most rewarding series of, of projects we did. There are so many things I love about this story. So one of them is I've, I've just recently been reading some of the training literature and there's a kind of a strong tradition of what some people call error avoidance training. And so the idea is you teach people the right way to do things and then you tell them to practice doing it the right way. And so there's this more recent movement that is really um, exploiting the value of a more exploratory approach and the power of having people make mistakes um, and how, how that sticks with people. It's just stickier kind of training than a more error avoidant approach in many cases. Um, so this is such a great example of that. Yeah, it's, you, you know, you think about your own life experiences and what's the stuff you remember. Like a lot of times you remember when you really screwed something up, right? Because it really sinks in. And so really try to try to put those, uh, try to give folks those experiences as much as possible. And sometimes when I'm doing training, regardless of whether it's SEAL training or even just general classroom training, I, sometimes I feel like I'm cheating people because I having I'm having them interact more. It's like, oh, I'm the I'm the teacher. I should be talking more. I should be doing more. But those are the things that people always you know always come back and say, hey, this was my favorite part. You know, going through that, throwing me on the hot seat and having me make these mistakes, and then coming back and obviously doing a you know kind of you know uh, sort of a guided reflection on it in, in a group format. But you know, those are the things that people remember, and it's always hard to hard to think, okay, you're not screwing them over by having them do stuff, you know, whether it's a training workshop or whatever, you know, people learn by doing. And I think that's 
kind of like a key tenet of, of, of what we all try to uh, try to emphasize. Yeah, very cool. The other thing I really um, uh, am interested in your story is I think a lot of, of culture preparation training uh, trains you. Here's here's what you need to know about this culture you're going to. It focuses on this specific situation. Um, but your training is more about developing the skills to adapt regardless of what culture you wind up in. Um, and so that feels like a really important twist here as well. Yeah, it's true because a lot of these folks, a lot of people don't know where they're going to be going and they might be going to three or four different places. So, you know, we do like to, and, and before they get deployed, they do get, you know, the, the, the military, I think, does a good job on things like smart cards and guides for, you know, the customs and the, you know, unique attributes of certain cultures that you want to, you know, phrases, things like that, that you want to know before you go to a specific region. But I think there are a lot of general skills and aptitudes, you know. Um, the, the first thing in, in any of our training that we always try to, to, to promote to folks is that this stuff is important and it's real, you know, because you still you have a lot of people with hangups because cultural training is not um, you know, it's not, oh, let, you know, let's go out and, you know, be soft and, um, you know, um, you know, just make friends with everybody. And, and I think a lot of people have a, a hang up and they have these kind of preconceived notions that, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm out there and I have a mission. And so the, the first thing we need to do is hit that awareness and say, you know, here's what it really is. And here's why it's important to mission success. You know, if you can build rapport and relationships with a village, I can't tell you how many through CDM and other um, you know, other interviews with folks, how many stories I have of people who have saved and live saves because they built this, built these relationships with, with folks. And then when an insurgent comes into town, they'll get, you know, these, these villagers will actually retain, uh, detain the insurgent and, and call the, call the U.S. forces in to come and get them. You know, they'll, they'll actually say, Hey, don't go down this road tomorrow because I saw somebody planning an IED there. And you got to think second and third order effects, you know, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe it won't help me with my particular mission, because I'm not going to be here that long, but there's going to be people coming that are going to replace you. And you need to think about them. You know, you need to think about, about, you know, the long term kind of thing. And you got to think about things like avoiding a CNN incident, too. Um, you know, what are things that are going to have lasting impact, your actions. And so awareness is the absolute first thing we hit is to try to help people become aware that, cross-cultural competence is a real thing and it has a direct impact on mission success. And once we get that, people are more willing to engage. Um, and then we can start hitting some of those um, observation, sense-making skills and, um, you know, uh, rapport building, relationship building, things like that. But again, you know, it's like we, and that's why we, uh, the, the way we left our training is we'd, we'd throw them in the hot seat right away. We'd give them, we'd have them go to that village on day one, hour one, without any training and have them go in, we give them an interpreter, and then we watch as things just go, go, go to heck, you know, and, um, and then we debrief it. And then the difference from day one to day five, um, it's, it's always nice to hear them say, wow, you know, I, I can't believe what I was doing on the first day of this versus what I'm doing now, interacting with my interpreter, you know, how I'm interacting with these different, you know, populaces, the things I'm looking at when I'm, when I'm interacting. Um, so, but again, it all starts with awareness, I think. Wow, that's fantastic. So I want, I want to ask for a different kind of story now. Um, so I know you've done a lot of field research in your career, and we all know that field research is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> what is one of the craziest situations you found yourself in in the name of science? 
Well, I, I can guarantee you'll learn nothing from this story, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, so there are a couple. I, we, we did a lot of interesting research with hackers, and the way we did some data collections there were pretty interesting. But I, I, I'd say the most unique situation I found myself in was um, is probably about maybe four about four years into client associates uh we've been working a lot with the marine corps and gary um had built up a lot of relationships with different colonels in the marine corps um you know pretty respected relationships and it meant a lot to us to have these sort of trust relationships with these folks um but one of the, one time this colonel was giving gary a hard time saying oh you know you researchers you study your decision making in these nice warm buildings you like, you know, I'd like you to see how it is out here and out in the field and see how your decision making is. And then so um, and so they invited uh, us or one of us to go to their um, winter survival training. And so I remember. So Gary came to me and he's like, Michael, he's like, I need you to do this. And so at the time I was, I was in much better shape. And so the only he's like only I think only you and Rob, Rob Hutton could do it. But Rob didn't have the clearance. He's like, I need to save face here. We need to send somebody to this winter training, um, and then maybe you can do some decision-making games. So do these little little pencil and paper exercises with people out, you know, in the middle of the survival training, and then compare it with when we uh, with you know the same exercises with people back in a you know in a more warm, fuzzy setting, right? And see if we get any differences in, in how people respond to these uh, rapid, uh, I guess, rapid response called tactical decision games, decision-making exercises, where you throw somebody a situation. So you have two minutes. Here's a tactical situation. What are you going to do? And see if there are any differences. He said, I just want you to go out there. And he says, he said, basically, I just want you to survive. You know, he said, he said, let's, you know, save face for the company. And I'm like, I, you know, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll try it. And um, I remember, you know, I was kind of nervous. I got all, but I was all excited. Had all these, uh, you know, paper exercises all printed out. And so I went out to a place called Pickle Meadows, which was in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, and so immediately I just, I actually had, you know, they gave me a gear or uniform and I just got thrown with a, uh, I guess a platoon. It was company level. So it was a bunch of captains and got thrown with a, um, actually broken down by squads. So groups of 12. So I just got thrown with the squad. Um, and we marched, uh, had backpacks, 60 pound packs. We'd march up the mountain. Um, and first thing we had to do once we got to the top is dig our own snow caves to sleep in. I'm like, okay. And so, <laughs> You know, and so we started, you know, just started doing that. And, and honestly, I, I forgot all about doing anything in terms of running any exercises. And I was just trying to, you know, you know, kind of survive and stay along and get along. And so I'm, you know, dig, digging snow caves, um, you know, where, you know, we have MREs, you know, fixing our MREs and just busy kind of moving around, um, you know, kind of staying alive kind of thing. And, um, and at some point I remembered I had to do these exercises. And so I went back to my pack and um and pull these things out and they've gotten completely uh soggy and so they've completely fallen apart and so i'm like uh ended up collecting no data whatsoever um but i know that it was for gary it's just a matter you know of uh you know showing that, a re that these researchers could go out here and so um yeah, about three days into it i remember i uh, hadn't seen this curl at all but i know i wanted to kind of show up and say hey you know yeah we're client associates we're here and we're still alive and um, we were on skis most of the time. And so um, I was starting to get used to it, skiing around. And so they were, he was down kind of like this bottom of this hill. And I was like, I'm going to go see him, see how, you know, let, let him know we're here doing fine. So I'm like, you know, swishing over back and forth. And then, 
and I'm coming up to him and uh, he's with these majors and they're going over obviously some plan, you know? So I'm like, oh, I'm going to figure out what's going on with the plan. Give him some decision-making perspective. And uh, I, I had like a small pack on, so my weight was a little off balance. And um, I gotten closer and closer. All of a sudden I realized I was out of control. And before I could, uh, before I realized it, I plowed into him. And I, sent, <laughs> I, I sent the guy flying. <laughs> this, was, oh, this was ahead of the whole thing. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, I didn't land on top of him because that would in, infer that I was near him. I sent him flying. And so I was like seven or eight feet away and we were both on the ground. I remember I got up and I was like, yeah, I was like scared to death. And he's like, he just like gets up first of his off and he says, oh, researchers here. <laughs> so, so yeah, I apologize profusely and stuff. And, um, yeah, you know, so then, you know, then we had a good discussion and, um, basically I collected zero data that entire that entire trip. But, um, you know, as far as, as far as a weird circumstance to be in, you know, we got to do, um, night movement by snowshoes. We, for kind of like a final exam, we got helo lifted up onto a remote mountaintop, our little, uh, squads, and they dropped 10 of us off and we'd have to navigate our way to a whole new location, you know, things like that. And it was just really, you know, living, building our own snow caves that we lived in. It was just a really amazing experience. You know, as far as a life experience, it was an absolutely amazing thing. It was the weirdest, uh, I guess, naturalistic decision-making environment I've ever been in. You know, end result, you know, I think we at least held our own, you know, kind of saved some face as researchers. So Gary was really happy, even though I didn't come back with any data whatsoever. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things you, you know, so many experiences, you don't, you don't appreciate them as life experiences as you're going through them. But afterwards, you look back on them and say, that was, you know, that was really cool. And again, um, you know, kind of thing that sticks with you. So I kind of remember this. I remember you coming back from this trip and having all these stories. We were all in the conference room. And somehow that story about nearly running over the colonel wasn't part of the uh, deep. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've heard this piece. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much I shared that one. <laughs> he was good natured about it. But I mean, you know, I thought I was getting really good at skiing. And, um, you know, um, and there were cross country skis in my defense. So. But yeah, um, yeah I, com- I completely lost control. <laughs> Hilarious. But but there are some, you know, these are these are Marine Corps captains, um, and you know, a couple of the guys were, were somewhat tall, and they they could not get the hang of the skiing, and so um, they had to put these things called skins on the bottom of their skis because it would slow them down, and it was like you know, it was like so, you know, what you would think is the most horrible thing that ever could have happened to them because they're insisting they were fine, but they kept falling over, and yeah, because a big thing about saving face. But it, it was just a great experience and just, you know, interacting with those folks, I gained so much over the years, so much respect for the military because I know, you know, people have preconceived notions about what folks are going to be like, but especially the Marine Corps, such a well-read and, and thoughtful, insightful group. And they really, you know, they really uh, have their officers and their enlisted people read, um, you know, be very well-read on, you know, not just strategy, but, but things like what it takes to be a leader, you know, Sun Tzu, you know, how, how not to fight things like that. So again, just, just great, great experiences. All right. So, so these stories uh, are you going more than an extra mile to get traction uh, in terms of, you know, being able to get, get the data in some cases, uh, or at least sort of earn the, the respect, if you will, of your, uh, you know, the, the, the targets of your study. I'm, I'm wondering though, uh, do you have stories about where you've, you've really struggled to get traction with your work? Uh, you know, either customers you thought you might be more receptive to what you're doing or, um, you know, ideas you wanted to pursue that you just can't seem to 
to get traction with? Yeah, you know, Brian, there, there, uh, you know, a couple. There, there are always going to be folks who are resistant to the cultural stuff because they see it as weakness, and they see it. You know, I'm training fighters. I'm training. I'm not training. One, one, uh, one colonel said, "I'm training fighters, not poof balls." You know, and it's just, you know, sometimes that's a, that, that would be an uphill battle trying to convince folks that this stuff is important and it's about mission success. Um, one of the areas that, that Julio and I and both really think would have a lot of value that we've, we've struggled getting inroads to is taking this cultural skills training and applying it to uh, police communities, police forces. Because, I mean, think of the idea, and I, I, we don't, we haven't heard of anybody doing this, but this could be so powerful. It's just like we uh, leveraged the uh, language instructors to be role players for the Navy SEALs. That was so much learning, amazing amount of learning. Imagine if you could do this with local communities where you engage the local community to be role players to help put the police and uh, uh, police forces in situations where they have to. Um, you know, go in and practice building rapport in a community. They have to practice, you know, um, you know, de-escalation skills, but interact, but doing so in cooperation with um, with local communities. You know, because I think that's a key moving forward um, is to get our police to interact with, um, you know, have real, true, and genuine collaborative interactions with local communities. And so. Um, you know, we're we're hoping, Hula and I are both hoping, uh, especially Hula, he's passionate about this stuff, that we can get some inroads there um, with, you know, kind of new and innovative police training that, you know, has the, has the concurrent uh, effect of getting the local community involved. And, you know, so they would play, they would play roles, they'd be trained to be role players. And then afterwards, they'd be involved in the debriefing, you know, hey, you know, how do you, you know, where, where did this, where did this person go right or go wrong? in de-escalating situation? How did they make you feel as you were interacting with them in the situation? What could have made it a lot worse? Um, you know, what, what feedback specifically do you have for them? That could be, that could really be invaluable, I think. And so it's a, it's a sort of a different funding venue. You know, we're more familiar with Department of Defense research. So it's, it's finding all those new inroads and then figuring out, okay, who really, at what level do you do this? You have local, you have local um, uh, police forces, you have, you know, you have state and then you have federal um, resources. So just figuring all that out, we've, we haven't quite tackled that one yet, but it's something we're very interested in doing. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So Mike, if you kind of reflect on your career, who are three people who have really influenced your approach? I guess the first one, um, you know, obviously is Gary, Gary Klein. Gary is the, he's, a, he's an amazing listener and there's so much power in listening because so few people do it, do it well. And one of the things I remember, this was this was pretty early on at Klein Associates. There was a uh, a new, very junior researcher right out of college, just started at Klein. And one of the things that really stuck with me is watching Gary interact with her. And so at first I just thought he was just, you know, doing the whole friendly welcoming thing. But he was actually almost like interviewing her, just picking her brain about her own personal experiences and really, really listening. And the thing about the thing about Gary was they learned most from him. I think most of all is that everybody has experiences that you don't have and you can learn from, you know, there, there's stuff you can learn from everybody. Everybody knows, everybody has at least one area where they know a lot more than you know. And so, and Gary just had this natural curiosity and such an active listener. Um, and I think that really influenced me in terms of, 
you know, going out and, and, and interviewing folks um, and just, you know, trying to take that perspective. So he's one. Um, There's another uh, guy I worked with when I was a client associate and even afterwards called Doug Harrington Sr. He was a uh, he was a trainer. He's a formal, former naval, naval aviator, but he also did a lot of training in nuclear power plants. Um, and so I started working with him on doing decision skills training while at client associates for um, naval air crews and, and actually a bunch of different audiences. And so he was just this most um, natural trainer I, I'd ever seen. And the thing about him, too, is he was very he was um, he was quiet. He didn't try to fire hose people. And he was very, he kind of taught me to be comfortable with silence when talking with folks. And he's one who really taught me is that it doesn't mean that they're uh, analyzing you or putting you on a spot. It means they're thinking, right? When you ask a question and people are quiet. Um, and he really helped me perspective take um, as well. As, you know, when, when doing the trainings, really understand that, you know, a lot of these people come in for, for training or even for interviews are probably feeling, um, you know, put on the spot. They feel like they're being judged. They feel like they're not going to have anything important or interesting to say. And so just uh, appreciating that and just understanding that when you're when you're up there in front of folks, they're not evaluating you. They're trying to, you know, they're in their own kind of bubble trying to think about what are they going to say the right thing. And he just had this natural kind of calmness about him, um, which I always found really impressive. Um, so, uh, I guess I guess a third person uh, in the field would probably be, and I know you you guys know, uh, you remember Dave Klinger, who was, um, you know, Dave was uh, about the friendliest person uh, around, and um, you know I knew him from client associates, and he, um, you know, interviewing with Dave, I, I, I just, I, I think one of the things I learned from him is that um, that, that influenced me the most is that. It's like you can't take uh, life or even little failures too seriously when you're at work. You know, it's like you can laugh at yourself a little bit and you can laugh at the situation if things are going wrong. If you're in the middle of a, you know, we're out in the middle of the California high desert for a uh, for an exercise and, you know, we're sleeping trying to keep scorpions out of our bags. He could always kind of see the humor in situations and make us, you know, kind of make us, uh, make us all laugh at it. Um, but also that really would put, um, put interviewees at ease as well and really said, you know, hey, there's a real importance here when you're trying to collect this kind of naturalistic data to um, put people at ease, you know, and if you can kind of, you know, be genuine about that and, um, you know, use humor in that way, it can, it can make a lot of difference in uh, success or failure of, of interviews and your interactions. And it also can then, you know, you can generate some, you know, kind of follow on relationships there as well. So I think those are those are three folks kind of thinking about it a minute who really impact how I try to do how I try to do stuff in this area. Nice. You know, as you mentioned, Dave Klinger, one of the things I really um, remember about him and in interviewing or really just interacting with other humans is just his ability to make you feel like he was so interested in whatever you were talking about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he was not he made you believe that you just but you could really feel it. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah, and you just you would see people's demeanor after one minute of coming in; they're all tense and stressed, and just uh, you know, just putting people at ease. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not you know, and it probably that probably you know it probably shows to my weakness that it's not necessarily the the research that these folks did, 
but it's more just how they how they interacted with people that I found so impressive and, and useful. Yeah, that's very cool. So, Mike, uh, quick test on your uh, NDM perspective. So, uh, don't you, there, can't, there better not be a quiz about anything uh, research related literature. <laughs> you made a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM. And on the pain of death, you are given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask? I'd say, tell me about the last thing you learned from talking to somebody. You know, just what's the last thing you learned? And if it's something, it lasts, maybe the last thing, last meaningful thing you learned. And see if it's superficial or see if it's something like a little deeper. You know, and then, you know, my, my first my first reaction to this question was going to be to, you know, throw it back at them. It's like if you had to, if you had to ask one question to better understand um, what I do for a living, what would your question be? Hmm. You know, and see if it's an open ended kind of asking for a story. I think, and so maybe that's not an, quite an NDM type answer, but it's a question to see. I don't know. I like to see if people are really active listeners, and if they're asking uh, questions that um, probe deeper thought, like the one you asked me. I'll just ask them that question, Brian. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, that's good. So, so that's three different bad answers to one question. That's pretty impressive. No, nah, that was good. Gotta admit. Well, now we have another question that requires three answers. So, Laura. Okay. So, Mike, we want you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie, and we're both going to try to guess what the lie is. Frick, only one lie. Um. Right. Two truths, one lie. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Uh, George Bush W once asked me about my lunch. Um, keeping with the theme, I was almost eaten by an alligator. And I uh, once won a pie eating contest as a child and they cut me off after three pies. Notice the food theme. I didn't realize. Nice. <laughs> I, have issues. I have serious issues. I'm, I'm actually a, a chubby kid still on the inside. Well, you were food in one of them. <laughs> Almost. Are you going to go first, Brian? Yes. And I am going to say uh, the gator is the lie. All right. I'm going to say that oh, this is hard. I'm going to say the pie eating contest is a lie. Well, one of you is correct. Uh, I never won a pie eating contest. I won, I won a couple of hot food eating contests. But yeah, congratulations, Laura. I think you know me, Laura. <laughs> Deep down, I was, I was ashamed of my weight problem, so I wouldn't brag about <laughs> eating a lot of pie. Yeah, although I probably did eat three pies at a time. So I never did it in a public fashion. I do that kind of a cowering in a, in a, in a closet or a pantry. Nice. So where'd the gator almost get you? So this was in um, um, Charleston or on the way to Charleston going, um, we were water skiing and we were going through these waters that became more and more brackish. And, um, and so uh, I was skiing and, um, and I wiped out, you know, I fell and then, you know, I was there, I was fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, boats way far away and they're turning around and they're coming faster than they should. And they're all waving at me. So I'm just waving back and they're pointing and waving. I'm just waving. Um, and uh, they get up there and they're like, get in the boat, get in the boat. And so I start freaking out. And so I, I climb in the boat and I what about the skis are like, leave. And I, and I get in the boat and I climb and then, uh, you know, look around and then there's, you know, 
five feet from me, there's an alligator head nice. right there. Alligator, crocodile, I don't know. See, that's me with details. Right. It's one of those things with big teeth. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it was a few feet from me. So, and, it, I, and I could tell it looked hungry, and I, could, and, I, and I was feeling like I was pretty delicious at the time. So I, <laughs> I, I know it was just about to eat me. Well, you'd probably be spicy. <laughs> yes, I would. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to know under what circumstances George Bush asked about your lunch. Okay, so it's uh, it's not as uh, exciting as it sounds, but um, I was hiking with my brother and dad. This was just out in Waynesville one day, and um, we had uh, uh, finished, and we had stopped on that main street and went into a McDonald's there, and um, and we didn't realize there was a bunch of hustle and bustle on the streets, and it turns out uh, W was coming through with his motorcade really slowly, and so we just came out, you know, stand outside McDonald's. I'm holding a Big Mac, and uh, – and he's like driving by and he's like standing at the entrance to the bus. He's like, Hey buddy, how's that Big Mac treating you? <laughs> so he asked me, asked me how my Big Mac was. And so I thought, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And that's, that is my brush with fame. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't like to brag, but it's pretty impressive. <laughs> and a tremendously accurate impersonation as well. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you, Mike, for speaking with us today. Yeah, no, this was fun. I really appreciate that you're doing this. These are really neat. Uh, it's a neat idea for these podcasts. So thank appreciate it. Thank you. And so for the NDM Podcast, I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.